This week on Oi Spaceman, Carnival of Monsters. Written by Robert Holmes, directed by Barry Letts. The Doctor and Joe arrive on the SS Bernice, a cargo ship crossing the Indian Ocean. Things are not what they seem. A monster appears in the sea, events repeat themselves, and a giant hand stills the TARDIS. Investigation reveals that they are inside a miniscope, an alien peep show sporting numerous miniaturized environments, which Showman Vorg and his assistant Sherna have brought to amuse the populace of the planet Interminer. listening to Oi Spaceman, a Doctor Who love story. We're a polyamorous husband and wife taking a critical and often socio-political look at all eras of Doctor Who. This podcast often contains spoilers, naughty language, and general disregard for most things Stephen Moffat and other adult content. The populace? It's, it's a very low population planet, apparently. I mean, it's, it's like a population of four gray dudes, right? Four gray dudes and an oppressed minority population. It's very colonialist, I think. Okay, so they're there to, like, I don't understand how you can't even address the fact that they're carnies. They are carnies here to amuse the gray dudes. Like, can we rename it that? Well, the original title was Peep Show. See, but Peep Show makes me think, like, they're going to strip, and that definitely did not happen. <laughs> well, <laughs> speaking of stripping, but but not, um, we but do. Not. This is episode 63 of Voice Space Man Adopt Your Love Story, and once again, we have a guest. Uh, the wonderful Holly, hello from, uh, from City of the Dead. Yes, um, and comfortable Bohemian elegance, and the internet, and your nightmares. Um, <laughs> I uh, <laughs> always freeze up at this point. <laughs> can, can I can I admit that I have yet to listen to an episode of City of the Dead, and I deeply apologize. But I heard you on the Pex Lives. A macro terror episode and knew i had to have you on so uh, that's very nice of you i think yeah, yeah. That it's it's, kind it's of kind, like... of a, kind of a veiled insult because i'm like oh yeah your real podcast i have no idea what you do but you know we're friends on twitter that's enough right <laughs> this is why i just say i just don't listen to podcasts i am a horrible person who podcasts and does not listen to podcasts so um i suspect most people are it's it's sort of a profession of shouting into the void <laughs> and then sometimes just like snarking at each other on on twitter yeah yeah that's kind of how it goes but uh today we are going to be talking about carnival of monsters with holly and we're not going to talk about anything new series because we really have nothing more to say um <laughs> holly you and i went back and forth a little bit trying to pick a story and i think uh we landed on this one do you would you like to talk about like kind of why i guess you technically didn't pick it, but would you like to just talk about like reasons for wanting to talk about this one? Okay, well, this this one is it's one of the big triumphs of the Pertwee era, I think. I don't actually think it's as good a story as some of the others, but it's definitely one of the most fun, one of the most interesting, and one that's uh, one that's one that seems to be trying a new direction for the show at a time when it did have a risk of becoming formulaic. And at the same time, it's also very formulaic, which is something I'm sure we'll get to. You have to keep in mind that if you're watching this sequentially, this one comes after the Three Doctors, which was the big crossover episode, which finished with giving the Doctor control over the TARDIS back. Um, and so the very first thing they do is um, jet them off into space. 
so what we're seeing here is a, as, as big a new milieu for the show as if we had a new Doctor, really. At least it should have been. Okay. No, I think that that's fair to point out. I definitely didn't know that. And um, I think that puts in perspective some of the kind of science fiction effects we get of the time period of wanting that big glossy feel. It's if you're going to be going to outer space, let's make it look really alien. But at the same time, um, you, it's not actually a big glossy feel at all because no. this was a, um, this was actually the cheap story. This uh, was thrown together by Robert Holmes at the last minute because they wanted to keep the budget down and they got Barry Letts to direct it because he was already working on it and so therefore he was cheap. Um, there's um, The whole story is structured such that they could shoot it on a particular schedule and um, they could have it the story take place in two separate environments and record simultaneously in both. So it's, um, it's not quite a... D- quite a bottle episode as we'd now understand it but it's similar to the um, companion light doctor light episodes in the new series mm. i would definitely agree with that and i think i think what maybe what i should have said is you can see how they they want it to have the big and glorious feel of we're in outer space but everything does fall a bit short <laughs> and if you can blame that on the budget sure that's great I'm not even I don't think it's so much of a budget because this is definitely a story that's concerned with small rooms and small minded people talking about small things. It's it's deliberate you it teases you at this point by thinking it's gonna rocket you into space for a big space opera adventure. And then what you get is you get a couple of carnies stuck in customs. Yeah, I, I definitely think that there is this kind of element of like, oh, we're going to set up our carniacs like four feet from the uh, place where we were uh, first uh, discharged on this planet yeah. and uh, never really move more than a few feet from there. I, I do <laughs> think that uh, there is that amusing element of it. Uh, I, I, I like the idea you, you mentioned it as a bottle episode, you know, it's almost a ship in a bottle episode, really. Um, yes, <laughs> I think yeah. it's been described as that somewhere. Yeah. Does it sound so? Probably. I'm not nearly clever enough to think of that myself, so it's fine. Um, Shana, general thoughts, uh, just uh, again, uh, general thoughts about Carnival of Monsters. How did you like it? Did you not like it? I, You know, I thought in general it was kind of entertaining, but like I said, I felt like it was shooting for a feel that it was not quite able to get. You know, the monsters are just really silly looking. The carnies at least from today's standpoint, are, like, adorably silly looking, like they could join the B-52s or something. Um, (laughs) I love them. Right? I love them. So there's a lot of little quirky stuff that I love about it, and that makes me like it as a whole. I think some of the tiny room and back-and-forthness of it, I did get maybe a little glassy-eyed of just kind of like, oh, we're watching Doctor Who, this is fun. Um, and not paying as close attention as I sometimes do. But I don't mind that sometimes in Doctor Who. Like, I want it to be my comfort food show at times as well. Uh, so I, I think it had a, a nice mix of elements for me. Yeah, no, I don't disagree. Um, in general, I, you know, it's funny. Watching through this the first time, I think because I'd come, I did watch these sequentially the first time. And coming after the uh, first three years of Pertwee and then coming into this and then suddenly there there's a whole bunch of space all of a sudden. Uh, 
it does feel very new and very original and i and i hadn't really thought of that comparing it to like a new doctor showing up um but i really do like pertwee in space uh i tend to tend to think that people dislike pertwee's performance for a lot of reasons i think i I mean i like pertwee but a lot of people don't but i think that Mm -hmm. people also just kind of dislike the pertwee era because the pertwee era is very unit heavy and it's kind of it gets a little samey and so there is this kind of sense of like, okay, are we are we just watching more of the Brigadier shooting people, or are we supposed to be watching the Doctor? Um, but this is definitely very different. And in fact, one of the reasons we didn't do this one the first time we touched on the Pertwee era was just because I wanted uh, not to show Shanna stuff that was a little bit more typical of Pertwee, which this is not. So, I will say though, there is that entire sequence on the boat. Well, let's move into that. Uh, Holly, any any thoughts about the boat sequences? <laughs> okay. Um, I think we'd better start where they actually arrive on the on the boat in the TARDIS, right? Because that has one of the best parts of the whole episode. I mean, we get first of all we get the we get um, the Doctor mentioning Metabolus three, which um, I, I can't call it an arc because it's not an arc, but this is definitely a running theme that goes on for the next couple of seasons. Oh, <laughs> that's cute. Um, there's this um, every so often he attempts to go to Metabolus Three, and he actually manages to go there, and he retrieves a magic crystal that does a does a plot thing when you wave it at the monster, um, and then he goes back there again, and Metabolus Three is what eventually kills him. So um, we're starting to delve into some real kind of um, destined death stuff here. Um, but, but then we through get that lens. Sorry, through that lens, uh, this episode kind of begins the end of the Pertwee run. It kind of yes, there's, there's a foreboding exactly. of death happening right here in the first. He gets the key to the TARDIS back, and now it's like, well, Tom Baker's on his way. Yeah, it's not something that was planned in any way. I do not want to give any impression that it was planned. <laughs> but um, as soon as Metabolus Three starts, I, you know, I find it very very significant that one of the first things that is mentioned in this episode which starts the which starts the end of the Pertwee era as we have first known it is a mention of the place where Pertwee is going to finally die or at least the planet that eventually causes his death rather right so So um Trenzalore uh kind of yes except Trenzalore was something that was actually come up with by someone who was thinking about it this was just an accident so the third doctor He's convinced that he's on Metabolus 3 because he could have done no wrong, even though he's very obviously in this old-fashioned ship. And Joe, um, Joe is actually rather wonderful in this story. She completely mm-hmm. makes fun of the whole companion role. Um, the first thing she does is turn around and start screaming because there's something alive. And, of course, we all assume it's the monster. And it turns out she's just play-acting because there's a crate of chickens. And the doctor, all serious, tries to communicate with the chickens. <laughs> And Joe, and Joe points out that they are just they are just chickens, and um, I suggest try clucking at them. And that's a there's a definite theme in this episode that um, Pertwee's doctor is actually um, not the smart one of these two. <laughs> he is the one who's insightful enough to finally work out that they. It, I mean, he's right when he says that they're not on Earth, but it's for the wrong reason. He's convinced they're on Metabolus Three, and he's so unable to admit that he's wrong that he continues believing it up until the fourth episode which i find amazing yeah well and i think 
I think this is um, a story where we get to see Joe have... I think there were some points in this episode where Joe got to really shine and make fun of the Doctor. And I just adored them. And uh, what's the actress's name? I always Katie Manning. Katie Manning. Katie Manning is just adorable when she's got that mischievous, like, ha ha, I'm going to show the doctor wrong. Um, it, she is just so fun when she gets to have those moments that I love them. Uh, so that when there are a few moments where I feel like she kind of gets left hanging or is like, oh, I'm a girl. Um, damseled, if you will. They were a little more disappointing because they stood out even more. Uh, but in general, again, I, I, I feel like I said like before, there, there's parts of this I really like and the rest of it kind of just, if it's a little sexist, eh, all of this era is still a little sexist. So... <laughs> I... I, I um... I wouldn't actually rank this as being one of my favourite Pertwee episodes at all. I think there are better mm. episodes in this actual season, which is, mm. which is a shame because I really want to like this one best. But my problems with it aren't actually anything to do with the sexism. I think, it's fa- I think this episode is fairly reasonable, all things considered. This is exactly. one of the few Robert Holmes that actually passes the Bechdel test. Exactly. Like, it's kind of like, eh, all right. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you, Holly. I just wanted to stick that in there. Yeah, um, Joe has a conversation with the flapper about the time loop. Claire Daly. Oh, okay. She was very cute as well. A lot of the reason why people hate Pertwee is because they don't buy that his performance of this sort of upper-class gentleman telling people what to do is actually ironic. And you just have to look at this episode. It's obviously ironic. Joe is continually getting the better of him. He messes it up when he tries to talk in upper-class slang to the weird old colonialist on the ship who we should get to later. He gets mistaken by Vorg and Scherner for being a carny, and they talk to him in Polari. I mean, he's he's ridiculous in this. This this whole episode is based on the principle that he's ridiculous, and not only that, he knows it. There's a little exchange right at the the beginning when he and Joe are still arguing about whether or not they're on Earth, and Joe asks him, "Um, are you ever going to admit you're wrong? And he goes, no, that's impossible. And then he smiles at her, because he knows he's being ridiculous, but he's doing it anyway. And I I think a lot of people are just, I think a lot of people are far too mean. They take it far too straight. Um, Pertwee knew he was silly. And this whole story is very silly. So if it's silliness that you think is missing from Pertwee, I just just think you're reading his whole era wrong. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I I think part of the reason that I like the dynamic between Joe and Pertwee so much, just to, you know, mishmash names, so much in this episode is because she gets to be so mischievous and fun and he gets to be a little bit extra on the silly side and but it's I, he doesn't crack he does no. take it totally seriously it's not like when um tom baker is being very right. serious in in this. i mean sometimes baker would be very very serious but usually it was only because things actually were serious and in a comedy story if he was playing serious he would be doing it with that little glint of irony you know it would be very obvious that he wasn't taking it seriously um Pertwee just plays it straight he plays it as a straight man in a comedy duo 
um, allowing um, Joe to have the business of doing the funny lines. I think right. um, a lot of people do seem to be against that style of Doctor Who. They seem to like it when the Doctor is the person who is making the jokes. But at the same time, you know, the Doctor is still essentially a funny character in this. Mm-hmm. And there's there's also some nice physical comedy as well, because um, Pertwee was actually surprisingly good at that. Um, right at the end of the story, there's a part where he gets up he um, passes out on the floor and he lands on his nose which squishes amusingly and considering Pertwee was very sensitive about his large nose it was very good of him to do that with it I think <laughs> excellent use of the nose there I, I like it um no I, I like Pertwee a lot I like him uh, partly because he's uh, one of the one of the real scientist doctors and that that speaks to me um is just kind of my own proclivities um he he typically I'm um, not necessarily in this story but he typically, uh, in the unit stories, he will uh, walk into a uh, facility, find something wrong, talk to the person in charge, get told off because of military bureaucracy or whatever, and then just go <laughs> find the smartest person he can find, convince that he knows better, and then try to get an ally that way, which I always find to be just this very weird thing for the doctor to be doing, but I kind of love it anyway. It's difficult to say what makes what makes Pertwee stick out as being an aberration amongst the other doctors because he clearly does and yet um i mean there's no criticism that can be leveled at pertwee which can't also be leveled at either troughton or tom baker (laughs) oh well and see actually i was going to compare him to troughton in the fact that and you know the good parts of baker uh, (laughs) whereas it really does seem that the acting comes first with their doctors of you can tell that these are skilled performers playing these parts. And so there is still a lot of nuance, even in sillier stories. You can have mm. them playing the straight man and letting other people get the laughs. Uh, especially, like, I appreciate when Troughton ends up acting very childish sometimes and getting flustered. But later we still get a feeling of, well, he was being childish and flustered, but he still is the doctor and he still does know what's going on. Um, and I like that balancing act between those two kind of uh, representations of the Doctor's personality. And for me, in this episode with Pertwee, it's kind of the out-of-his-element James Bond. Um, <laughs> but played by someone who I feel like isn't quite convinced he's James Bond. Uh, yes. Um, I f- I. There's a lot of, um, I think there's a, a lot of people, again, a lot of the um, anti-Pertwee case seems to be based around him swanning around, convincing other people he's better than them and thinking he's better than them. Um, you even see um, you even see Moffat talk about this when he did that thing for DWM about which doctors he thinks likes themselves. And he said, I think right. Pertwee likes himself just fine. You d- I don't get that at all. I think Pertwee is one of the most miserable doctors, and he's trying to—he's trying his best to keep things together. He always feels like a man who's slightly out of his depth, and is trying to assure himself that he isn't. And that's definitely where he works best. Um, I like his boyishness. Um, it doesn't really come through in this episode particularly, but it does come through in a lot of his earlier stuff, which I very much appreciate. Okay, so meanwhile, while we've got this stuff going on in the ship, we are also on an alien planet 
which is not a studio set at all. And um, in this, all. and it seems to be in the customs from this alien planet. Um, we have Schoener and Vorg, who are carnies, and they they have a device called a miniscope, which contains a sample of monsters from all across the universe in their natural habitat, including some Tellurians, um, which is what they call humans. Um, in fact, Vorg and Schoener, they have all sorts of wonderful lines between them, which sort of subtly point fun at the absurdity of Doctor Who, but it lacks the uh, smugness of um, some some of it. I mean, sometimes you get it and it's really just very up itself. Like you, like sometimes in the new series, they will start talking mm. about, oh, no, hanky-panky in the TARDIS or complaining about corridors or all the running and everything like that. But no, here they, they actually, it's actually sort of ro- woven into the story a bit better, so it comes across as being sort of cutely self-aware rather than um, up itself, I think. Yeah, um, and, um, I think you've pointed out, not, not to say this quite so straightforwardly, one of the reasons that I like I dislike Moffat's sense of humor often, is we get these characters who are carnies, but it doesn't make fun of them being carnies. Uh, they're actually really interesting um, and have... The story, is, the story is absolutely on the side of Vork and Scherner. They right. are, they are, in fact, in a lot of ways, they even upstaged the Doctor and Joe, oh, and that's hard she- to do. Uh, sure enough, she is just adorable and the way the the costume is so over the top and like moves and stuff with her that she has like you know literally not only a bubbly personality but like bubbles around her yeah she gets the big moment at the end of the episode it ends with a close-up on her face i mean she's the heroine really she really is and i love her reaction to all the other characters, because I think she's actually probably one of the most uh, judgmental characters in the episode. Um, Vorg, I need to point out quickly that Vorg's costume um, is a pastiche of the Pearly King outfit that is um, traditionally worn in the East End. Oh. Uh, that's, that's something to Google if you're interested in that. So that ties him in with his cockneyness. It looked very specific, but that makes a lot more sense. <laughs> um, at the same time, of course, he's wearing a very loud, over-the-top version of formal clothing. And um, he has a bow tie and a hat. And, um, you know, there's, um, there's definitely something of a doctor and companion about them, isn't there? Oh, it's definitely. it's very overt. I I, I can't yeah. I can't imagine. I I kind of wanted Sherna to just uh like just walk on the TARDIS with Joe and the Doctor. Really, like I mean, I'd totally be down for that. Um, for the rest of the season, just uh, have Sherna come along. But then again, if Sherna had joined, then probably we wouldn't have gotten Sarah Jane in the next year. So that would have been right you know, terrible. Oh, Sherna and Sarah Jane would be something to see. Oh my gosh, that would have been so funny. <laughs> um, right. The expanded universe is rather horrible to um, the Lermans. Um, it oh, seems no. to have some conceit that um, the Lermans actually mature at a lower rate than humans, so they act like 12-year-olds when they're 26, which really does Sherna no favours at all. Oh. She's very mature, and in fact, by far the most mature member of the audience. I don't know, uh, of, of the cast, I've no idea how they got that idea. Yeah, Probably, probably like, written by misogynists. Let's just assume that. Yes. Uh, <laughs> she's young and pretty, so therefore she has to be silly and immature, and she's wearing a goofy costume. And no smart, intelligent, reasonable person would ever do so 
for the purposes of a job that they hated or anything like that. It's like, so clearly. <laughs> she, well, she even says she used to be a dancer. Right. Yeah, I think, I mean, she very much comes across as the working class girl who had big dreams and is instead stuck in customs with some sh- shit that she didn't even know they didn't have instructions <laughs> for. I-, I feel, I mean, she, you really do feel bad for her at points of, she's just like, what the fuck did he do? <laughs> what are- she's, she's a great character. Actually. She's one of the, the all time Robert Holmes, great characters. I would say. I kind of get the feeling he ripped this mini scope off. Like he actually stole it from some other society and it's not really his and he doesn't quite know how it works, but right. that has no mm-hmm. metaphorical resonance for another character that we know of on this show at all. So I'll just <laughs> move into um, some of the other elements where I think um, the mini scope is sort of meant to be like watching TV. Um, I think mm-hmm. that, you know, the, the, the metafictional elements of this um, metafiction goes a long way with me. A little goes a long way with me. I think it works here. Um, I think the miniscope is, is kind of watching TV. I mean, they kind of make fun of the plesiosaur as like, uh, you know, Oh, and then the monster comes in at this bit. Um, yes. You know, you've got these repeating this plot that goes over and over again. The same bits of dialogue happen over and over again. Uh, I mean, it does, it does feel, um, kind of interesting on that level i mean it does feel like robert holmes kind of uh writing his own experience of writing tv into uh, yes. the script um i'm wondering if anybody has any uh, further thoughts on that well there's there's one particular part where um vorg turns up something to turn the mon- to turn all the humans aggressive so that they all have to start fighting and then he says but i can't leave it too long or they will start damaging each other and turns it back down and that's very much a doctor who problem isn't it you get you get the situation where the doctor is being chased by the guards but you can't have them do that too long or otherwise the guards are going to start shooting him so you have to invent something quickly. You have to end the episode there. Or you have to get the doctor captured. Um, it's very much this. Um, you get the feeling he's someone who is trying to make formulaic television. There's a lovely bit of irony as well in the part where he shows um, he shows the um, customs officials the uh, the ogron, and he he says something along the lines of oh they're they're they use but servants by some species called the Daleks or something. However, the Drashics now they are the most terrifying species in the universe. He obviously must have been. He he oversaw things. He was he was working for Doctor Who around the time that they were making things like the quarks and the uh, and the crotons, which were his deliberate attempts to create a successor to the Daleks at this time when Terry Nation wasn't working with them. So there's this, and the Drashig is of course an anagram of dishrag. He knew that they would be a failure. So there's this, there's a lovely self-aware irony there that he knows it's just not possible to compete with the Daleks here. I liked that a lot, but then I also was really then curious by the kind of very heavy-handed zoo conversation at the end where it's, well, what do you do? You put animals in a zoo and you keep them in an unnatural environment where they're forced to carry out things. I don't know that I felt that way about it the whole time, so that 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 part of the kind of almost environmental message at the end, I was a little surprised at where that came from. (laughs) 
but otherwise that, I, yeah, the, yeah the doctor has a line doesn't he um something like um it's it's questionable enough when you're gathering animals for your entertainment you've got to keep in mind robert holmes was of course a very angry vegetarian as we all know which uh shana hasn't seen the two doctors yet but we're gonna get there eventually Okay. <laughs> Robert Holmes was an, was one of the vegetarians who bangs on about how vegetarianism is better than everything else. For reference, I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Um. Yeah. No. I mean, the but the... it's also para- it's also parallel partially to the male gaze, though, isn't it? Um. Because Joe has a line that being in this miniscope being watched by people she complains and people are just watching me for kicks running around from these monsters anyone who thinks that must be evil and horrible yeah and considering she's a character who was explicitly added because terence dicks thought they needed someone to run away from monsters in a mini skirt i mean it's it i mean i'm not saying it's going to solve sexism overnight but at least it shows that there's there's some awareness of that as a problem absolutely i don't know that there's quite as much of an awareness of how gendered a problem it is in that moment, but I do appreciate the idea that there is a questioning of this kind of voyeuristic quality of entertainment of any kind, and the idea of almost, you know, the consent of of being put on exhibition. And the fact that when we come out, we have carnival entertainers who are straight up meant to be con men and um gray dudes who are miserable gray dudes who think there is no value in entertainment it's very bbc that because there's um um vorg has a line that we just do entertainment nothing difficult nothing political And that's absolutely Robert Holmes. I, I can just imagine him saying that to some bureaucrat, saying like, "No, no, no! This isn't about you. This isn't about anything political." Um, actually, that may be more of a Malcolm Hulk thing, but um, yeah, no, I can, I can. Isn't that kind of the thing that that we always kind of get from from family entertainment that actually is like disguising some kind of political message? That no, 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 it's not political. These are aliens. Come on, it's green skin. That's not about uh, it, racism or anything, yeah. you know. <laughs> but at the same time it's it's very political even in universe because it's being used as a sort of um bread and circuses thing in order to keep the um working class from rising up and killing the president. <laughs> it was described by the grey-faced bureaucrats as being some sort of liberal even though he still enacts the death penalty for treason. Yeah. Um, liberals, um, liberals I think, a I think term, you know. Yes. <laughs> I think the class some of the class stuff in this episode really, really fails, unfortunately, which is part of the reason why, um, it, why it doesn't quite, it isn't a 10 out of 10 episode for me. It feels like a stage play almost to the degree that I feel like we get a subsection of a larger story. We don't learn as much about the society as I would quite like. We don't learn the whole political situation. We don't necessarily get to see that larger social situation, but we get to see all the ramifications of it in this weird couple of spaces. Like you said, there's, we've got two rooms to work with guys, two rooms and a marsh. That's about it. Right. (laughs) The marsh looks really good though. Um, I mean, that's gotta be one of the nicest BBC quarries I think I've ever seen on this show. (laughs) 
Yeah, we actually um, just just to kind of move slightly backwards and slightly forwards here, just to uh, to kind of loop, um, like in this mm-hmm. podcast, the way we've uh, looped in the in the episode. Uh, sorry, I tried to make that sound clever, but it's it's really just it's a nice link. This earlier, yeah. you know, um, we talked about Sherna before uh, as kind of the companion to Vorg. I kind of was rewatching this. I'm like, I kind of sort of see the dynamic between them sort of being like the Romana one relationship uh, in season 16. Yeah. Um, maybe because we just, uh, Shane and I just went through that season on the podcast and maybe because the, uh, all the marshland kind of reminded me of uh, the power of Kroll. Marshman, the Marshman. Although that's a uh, full circle, but you know, yeah. Anyway, uh, foots. <laughs> Oh right! Damn it! We watched those too close to each other. Well, I'm I'm not I I when I first read that on the email, I thought no because Joe in this episode is shown to be smarter than the Doctor. But at the same time, that's only really because they're both Vorg and the Fourth Doctor are parodies of John Pertwee's Doctor, really. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, um, if you watch Robot and you think that f- the Fourth Doctor was not anything other than a per- uh, other than a parody of of Pertwee, you know. Um, so, if you've got a parody of Pertwee with a parody of a Doctor Who assistant, what is a Doctor Who assistant like? Oh, she just follows the Doctor around asking questions like, "What is it about? How do you make it funny?" Okay, well, you have it so she knows more than he does. It's it's the same joke, and that's why it reappears. Yeah, I can get I can see that. Yeah, no no question. Uh, do we have any more thoughts about the um, uh, kind of metatextual metaphor here and the, uh, the uh, yeah plots? Uh, I would like yeah. I would like Go to ahead, talk Holly. a bit about that. Um, well, the essential plot of what is going on amongst the um, amongst the interminorans. Or it's the minorans, or the you know the the gray gray fellas. Yeah, uh, the gray um, dudes. We can just call them the gray. Yeah, dudes. The, fine. the gray dudes are trying to um really are trying to use the dangerous animals inside this miniscope in order to kill the president, in order to do damage, and therefore um usurp the president. Um, and uh, they have this explicitly anti-immigrationist reason for doing this. They um. They're against the idea of opening the borders. Um, they don't like how the president is trying to open the borders. And so, therefore, what they're trying to do is they're trying to engineer the immigrants into causing a huge disaster and turning um, the population against that, right? right? Some pretty good political manoeuvring done by Michael Wisher, who is better known for playing a different racist in Doctor Who. Um, a, a different and more effective racist. <laughs> <laughs> But the result of this is that the villains generally are doing what we actually want the characters to do. Um, the um, less villainous interminerans who aren't planning usurping just want to kill all these weird aliens. Um, it's, the, um, it's the ones who are trying to manipulate them into killing the president, the really bad ones who let them live. And which one is the gray dude that's just kind of wishy-washy? Because there's one gray dude who's just kind of like, I don't know, guys. <laughs> I mean, oh, like, is that that's Orum? That's the one that isn't Davros and isn't Packer. So right, right, okay. So there you go. Maybe that's why I could never remember who he was because he isn't isn't. 
but I, I really appreciated that there was this kind of almost chorus, like Greek chorus of like, and here is the political situation we're in. I feel this way. I feel this way. I am swayed both ways. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think there's um, there's a bit more to have it. There's a bit more to it than that. Um, I'm reminded of something Quentin Tarantino said, which is that when you're watching a film, um, when you see two cars coming towards each other, for a moment, everyone in the audience wants them to crash. Right. So that's why we end up sort of um, rooting for these horrible people, because what we want to see is we want to see Joe running from monsters. We want to see um, the heroes survive so they can pull it out of the hat. We don't want... Um, there, there's this sort of strange push and pull dynamic between what we as an audience want to see and what the villains want to do that um, is is skewed in these interesting sort of ways. And I'm, I can't I can't quite follow it coherently, I'm afraid. But it's um, definitely something that you can tell Robert Holmes was thinking about. Well, it's it's almost more interesting because it doesn't have a a uh, overt political message. Why you know it doesn't feel like. Because Holmes hasn't maybe considered it quite as deeply, but I think just because he's a good writer, he just sort of sticks this stuff in. It Because mm. it doesn't have a clear meaning, um, although I'm sure our friend Jack Graham could uh, speak for hours on it, uh, because it doesn't have a clear, a, a kind of an obvious meaning, it's almost more interesting. It's more interesting to tease apart because of that. Mm-hmm. At least that's sort of a, the feeling I get in, in a lot of stories. I actually... Um, I'll be honest. I, I barely thought about the uh, the more political aspects of this because it, it kind of bored me a bit. <laughs> quite honestly, it's there. It's it's boring. Gray functionaries kind of uh, plotting to overthrow each other, and uh, you know, I don't know. I kind of more saw that it's Robert Holmes making fun of the idea that uh, Doctor Who had a bunch of boring gray functionaries uh, arguing with each other when all anybody ever wants to see is the monster. Well, it comes across as melodrama that way. Then I think that mm-hmm. where you have such a meta storyline that when you look at each of the characters, they are a bit caricatures of themselves, um, but purposefully so. Anyway. Um, it's, it's interesting you say melodrama because um, Davros is trying to kill the president who is his brother, mm. which is a very... Uh, it didn't, that didn't need to be in there. And it doesn't really um, change anything. It just makes us consider these characters as being these kind of Shakespearean archetypes instead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I totally Which is, of course, an- another thing that Doctor Who tends to do. It tends to have this kind of weird Shakespearean feel, but in the middle of this story where, again, we all we want to see is some ridiculous costumes and monsters. Uh, well, and I think... I Actually, now that I think of it, the Shakespearean comparison like this definitely feels like it is an act (laughs) of a Shakespeare play maybe two not quite the whole thing um but when you have kind of the the rambling performers who end up becoming more interesting than perhaps the political side and this kind of (laughs) short clipped focus on um this narrative that we can read this much into but it's not we're not necessarily bound to it. We can kind of look at all the different ways you can read these metaphors and these characters um together. So I like it the more we talk about it. <laughs> not that I um, like it to begin with, but now I'm like, "Oh, well this is interesting." 
Um, one gag I really like in this episode, which is another swipe at Doctor Who, which manages to not come across as being smug, is the name of President Zarb. I mean, that's ridiculous. Zarb. This is a man. Robert Holmes is a man who really knows his words. He would never give an alien a stupid name like Zarb unless he really had something to say. And um, of course, he what he of course Zarb isn't even shown in the story he's very important but we never see him and in fact um vorg tries to um tries to fake that he has a pass from zarb when he actually has an autograph from somebody else named zarb it's such a common alien name that even circus strongmen also have it yeah, no, I, I, I liked that element as well. And, uh, of course, um, uh, Shanna hasn't seen the web planet, so... Uh, we'll, no, but that sounds great, actually. I like that. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the central alien there is the are the Zarbi, um, which are... Uh, I don't know, the web planet will get there eventually. Um, eventually. <laughs> um, I actually yeah, the, the web planet is definitely something you, that has to be experienced <laughs> rather than described. <laughs> Well, uh, it's actually out of print in the U.S., so copies of it are very expensive, um, which is uh, one of the reasons I haven't uh, bought it and forced Shannon to sit through all uh, six or seven episodes of it yet. So, But uh, that'll happen eventually. Maybe I should put on a Patreon. Well, once once I get enough money to buy that DVD, we'll put it out. Uh, yeah. I really I don't care right now. We'll <laughs> anyway. watch it when we watch it at some point. I don't know. Maybe it'll show up in like some black bin and at uh, Chicago TARDIS, and some guy will like come out behind a a like you know plant and say, "Hey, I heard you needed a copy," <laughs> uh, and you can bootleg that shit. But yeah, the black market there. Mm-hmm. Um, don't buy don't buy black market Doctor Who DVDs. My friend died that way. You don't know what they are. <laughs> My friend brought a bootleg copy of Genesis of the Daleks, and it turned out it was the Horns of Nymon. Oh God, no! Please, <laughs> that would that would be that would be punishment enough. Yeah, no. I think that is that that is uh, perhaps that that's memeable. That that might we be the dorkiest me. joke that's ever been told on this show. So congratulations! I, I, like I live to serve. <laughs> Um, Holly, I was going to, uh, this is something that, that I just kind of like as an American, uh, you know, I have a general sense of this, but I, I did want to get your, um, thoughts. Um, this is a, you know, they do land on this British ship in, uh, the Indian ocean in 1926, or at least that's sort of the hypothetical. I mean, obviously there's some, these are colonialists. This is like, uh, there's something that they're trying to say, maybe, but I feel like, you know, as an American in 2015, I missed anything but the most general sense of this. Uh, I'm wondering if you, um, just as a, a person with a British accent, uh, could could uh, inform me as to what you think the point of that is, if any. Right. Um, to be honest, I don't know a whole lot about the subject, but I would suggest that it was... Um, in a in a way, it seems to be trying to parallel the colonialism of the um, humans with the colon with the sort of classism of the interminerans, um, because um, you hear the um, who's the fellow in the white? What was his name? Oh, uh, that is uh, Major Daly, I think. 
Yes. yes. He's, he talks about how the cook on the ship makes excellent curry because he's um, a madrassi, which is a fairly serious racial slur. He talks about how he always thought they were shiftless and he wouldn't have them work on the plantation. Oh, jeez. Yeah, this yeah, is... I missed that. Well, it's, yeah. it's said about four times because of the time loop. <laughs> right. And I missed it every single time. That's... Okay, thank you. I, I, so, so now, this, now, this it's, man it's, is... It's clear that Daly is meant to be portrayed very uh, unpleasantly, but yeah. also like he's like, oh, and I'll pull out the drinks for you. He's made harmless because he's a stereotype. So, I mean, um, British children, especially in the 1970s, would have grown up reading all this um, British adventure fiction, a lot of which was about, Amer- was about Indian co- colonies and so on and so forth. So this was an archetype that they would have recognised. But at the same time, you've got to look at the, um, his daughter, who is, um, she, she talks about f- pop culture, which isn't very normal for Doctor Who at this time. Yeah, she mentions Fred Astaire and some other... She mentions going to musicals and things like that. So we've got, again, we've got this sort of idea of this very colonialist society and where people are using sort of trashy entertainment in order to distract themselves. And so there's a bit of an edge there. I don't think... It's not a very pointed edge, especially by Robert Holmes' standards. But um, making it more pointed probably would have derailed the show. And it is delightful when all these... Um, when all these sort of um, smug colonialist um, Brits are complaining about the um, dinosaur and everything like that. <laughs> right. Like, it's, look, it's, look, also, it's, it's also absolutely delightful when the doctor messes up his slang. He talk, yeah, topping yeah. day, what? Um, 99 skiddo. <laughs> right? And I think that those are the parts that made me really like the episode, is there are some really good just moments throughout where, that are funny, or the, the political stuff just gets just political enough for me to be interested. And now that I understand how many slurs were being thrown um, on the time loop, it does make me look at the other scenes a little bit more closely in terms of politics. I don't know. It feels very, you know, to go back into my English major, insert, you know, glasses, boost up the nose here. (laughs) It it, it feels like a very postmodern story where it's not really about having a strict narrative or story to tell, even though it does. Um, but it's much more about like this snapshot of a situation and a world and the people and how the doctor ends up interacting with it um, in a very heightened kind of melodramatic or heightened melodramatic way. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Ian Martyr's character in the ship. We absolutely please let's. He didn't say "oh girl" once, so Shanna was fine with him. But you know, I I, I actually like Ian Martyr's character in this better than I like Harry Sullivan. Amen. Shanna, would you like to tell I'm, the I'm, tell the audience what you think of Harry yeah. Sullivan? Oh me? Yeah. I fucking hate the bastard. I want to okay. punch him in the face. He, however, did look good in uniform and was much nicer in this. I admit the fact that Ian Martyr looks good in uniform is a big part of that. But I think another thing is that he's not as, um, he's not as, I hate to say the word because, of course, Harry Sullivan is majorly sexist, but he's not as squeaky clean and naive as Harry. Yeah. 
I mean, Terence Dix's original idea with Harry is that he was going to be a sort of a 1930s boy's own adventure hero who'd wandered into a Doctor Who story and couldn't understand why the Doctor kept up staging him. But it never really comes across, does it? It's, apart from Robot, which was, of course, the Terence Dix written story of that season. Right. Um, because um, Robert Holmes plays him mostly seriously in the arc in space. And then after that, he's sort of, um, he's sort of reduced to, um, hey, look at that, Doctor. I wonder what that is. <laughs> and then old girl. Yeah, but he's sexist as well, and it's supposed to be charming. Um, I don't dislike Harry Sullivan at all, but I think oh. he was a... Uh, mostly I like him on the strength of Robot and the arc in space and on, on how lovely his chemistry is with Tom Baker, but... Um, I think he is definitely a character who deserved better than he got from the stories. And it's what it's here, though. He's not actually playing a character we're necessarily supposed to like or agree with. And he does a lot just with little with just his little sizing up glimpses of the um, of the flapper girl um, to mm. characterize him as be as being this sort of um, soldier who goes around. You can tell he's a heartbreaker, basically. And I think I think Harry Sullivan needed a bit of an edge like that. It improve it improves that sort of um because now because then then he becomes a sort of deconstruction of the boy's own adventure hero or at least a rather than a um rather than a sort of unironic reprisal of it right and i think that it would have been lovely to see that with harry sullivan uh especially with sarah jane um because then she they actually could have had some more of a rapport than just him saying old girl and her rolling it her eyes if he eventually became aware of his own sexism that could have been interesting or played up him you know not even understanding his own sexism but mm-hmm. i and i will agree with you what i think is interesting and not just about him in this episode but really all of the characters in this episode is that i feel that we learn about all of the characters there there's a lot of characterization even if we don't get like personal life histories i feel like we get to know them like as you said through subtle glimpses different um body language um the, the editing the editing plays a big part in it yeah. too because the thing is although the scenes are repeated they are repeated with subtle differences every time we go around them um especially the way the camera picks up different details mm-hmm. for instance in the first scene where we the first time we see the scene repeat it's um shot in the same style that doctor who generally is shot um the second time we see the star repeat the focus is entirely on um on um, Ian Martyr's character and the woman um, while we know the Doctor is skulking in the background. And so the result is that it ends up highlighting different parts of the relationship between these characters. So right. he, as well as suggesting that the loop isn't isn't a time loop, it's not a loop in the universe, they are being looped externally. Yeah, it's, I, it's beautifully executed. Sorry. No, 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 no. I, I love that... Um... I love that element of it. I was uh, thinking while I was watching this that the, uh, you know, again, coming back to that metaphor of the, uh, the, mi- the miniscope as a television set, I was thinking it would uh, speak almost more to the modern audience's concept of Doctor Who uh, because we, we have rewatched these so many times. I mean, um, obviously, you know, we, we kind of expect people listening to this podcast have, have probably seen Carnival of Monsters at least once, if not 
many, many times over the course of their lives. And, um, you know, we do kind of know when certain bits happen and we pay attention to different characters at different times and that sort of thing. So um, in, a, in a way that, that just wouldn't have been possible for audiences in, in 1974 or 1972 when this aired. I don't know. Any, any thoughts about that, Shana? I think it's hard because there is a lot going on here just in terms of the writing and the note however you see it as melodrama or whatever caricatures there, this is a stylized episode in how it is written, how it is shot. It's, it is different for a lot of reasons. And so for me, it is a little bit hard to see it like through the lens of, okay, well it's 2015. What is really being talked about? And this with however, 40 something years of removal, um, because I was actually interested in the story that they were telling, I think I got a little bit more into the political side than you did, maybe. Uh, did you have any thoughts to that, uh, Holly, or uh, not so much? I think one one point I'd like to talk about is a point you had on the list you gave me, um, where you compare the third Doctor and Joe to um, Peter Capaldi and Clara. Oh. Yes, actually. Um, yeah, let's, let's go into that. I was going to skip I, it entirely, but... I don't buy that at all. However, there, there is one single thing in this particular story that I think there might be some merit in. Uh, but tell me why you thought of this. Um, for me, it was more of just kind of a, that's the general thought that I, I kind of have. And so many people will compare uh, Capaldi to, third, to the Third Doctor, mostly just on costume in Series 8, quite, quite frankly. Uh, you know, he's the older Doctor. He's with the younger uh, woman. Uh Honestly, I don't think it's a, a perfect comparison or even a, a really great comparison, but I thought it would be interesting to discuss why it's not a great comparison. So my, my notes were more fragmentary than that. But uh, I think that if I were going to make the case, I would say that the uh, Joe Grant third doctor relationship is often a, uh, a kind of father, father-daughter sort of, uh, or you know, kind of fatherly uncle sort of thing. Um, you really get the sense of the old man like helping the, uh, the younger woman to, to grow and to kind of become more of who she needs to, who she wants to be. Whereas, um, Capaldi and, uh, um, Jenna Coleman's relationship is, uh, this incredibly toxic, awful thing where he's making fun of her hips all the time. So, uh, really they're not very much alike at all, except for it's an older man and a younger woman. But I'm interested to know, now that I've completely, uh, cut my, cut myself off of the needs there, I, I'm interested in, uh, your thoughts on that. Well, the one thing that I thought was possibly significant was the part in this episode where Joe Joe basically becomes the keeper of the sonic screwdriver. In all the parts of the story where doors are needed to be opened, it's Joe who actually does all the opening. Um, They really make a point of this. Um, The doctor complains that he can't open a door because it's got a mechanical lock and he needs something more primitive. And it suggests a skeleton key would work if he had one. And Joe reveals that she bought along a huge bunch of skeleton keys because she's brilliant and thought ahead well done joe she uses the skeleton keys multiple times to get herself out of prison after she gets locked up in there again and even in one scene where she doesn't need to do this um the doctor gives her the sonic screwdriver so she can open the access vents to take them into the workings of the miniscope um and i think considering at the the end of this season this was this is the part where joe leaves and she gets married and she goes off on her own life 
And it's implied that she's going off on her own adventures as well. She's going to the jungle. She's going to, she's exploring. She's doing her world, doing her bit to make the world a better place, even if she's not doing it fighting monsters anymore. And they really wanted to make that clear. The fact that he's giving her the sonic screwdriver is a little bit of a um, passing it down of the torch, really. And that's something they try and do with um, Capaldi and Clara, but I don't think it works so well, mostly because whenever they try and touch on it, they go around and have the characters explain that that's what they're doing. Yeah, and I I think if I was going to say kind of a final response to that is, I think so far, especially making the Capaldi comparison to anyone, I think Capaldi has been at least two and a half different doctors since we've seen him. (laughs) Uh, He's now up to the 14 and a half doctor, I get it, yeah. Right, exactly. I would almost compare him more to uh, Matt Smith in this episode of the kind of goofy, but in terms of hiding his intelligence. But I I don't know. I think my bigger problem is just comparing uh, Joe to Clara at all, because Clara has been so underwritten. And (laughs) even though... um, you know, Joe is gets to be the formulaic door opener to some degree, uh, well, to quite a literal degree, as Holly just noted. Um, she still has like, and this is my useful purpose, and there is a respect there between her and the Doctor. And you know, I is it a Joe episode that I like? For the most part, yes, I like her in this episode. I like what she gets to do. I like that she gets to be goofy a little and outwit the doctor so there's a lot about that part that i like i just yeah the comparison with the third doctor and compaldi just does not make any sense to me whatsoever (laughs) if you had to compare the the 12th doctor to um previous doctors what would you do because i mean there's there's plenty of fun just just doing the maths here you know Mm -hmm. Well, so Shana hasn't seen any of the fifth, sixth, or seventh Doctor stuff yet, so we'll, we'll we have to throw those out at least for for Shana. But um, mm-hmm. do you have um, an immediate answer to that for Shana? I would say he is a mix of one, two, and eight. <laughs> eight because of the kind of alien bumbliness. Um, Hartnell, of course, because of his stern kind of more dramatic moments, but most recently. In the newer, uh, in our brand new episodes, I think we're starting to see a little bit more of the the knowing jokester, the kind of kind of out of his mind, but kind of in complete control. Um, at least that's kind of what I think they're trying to do, and that reminds me of Troughton a bit. But yeah, again, I feel again like Capaldi's doctor hasn't really been consistently written. I'm trying not to be all anti-Moffat. No, I I agree with you. I think, based on the three episodes I've seen so far of the current season, I think they're struggling somewhat with trying to write his character. Something about it really badly isn't working. and I've yet to see enough of it to know what it quite is. It might be that when I rewatch it again in in five years, I look at it and I go, actually, no, this was truly the golden age of Doctor Who when I was moaning about it, which is always a possibility. Um, but uh, yeah, there's there's something wrong. They seem to be trying to um, 
they sort of are trying to make him hip in an awkward kind of way and um they, he ends up sort of retreading a lot of Matt Smith territory in a way that isn't something that Capaldi is particularly interesting or watching doing, which is a real shame because he's a wonderful actor. Yeah, I, I agree. definitely liked the Doctor's character better in the in season eight, at least based on the ones I've seen so far. I will say, I feel like, and and Daniel and I uh, talked about this in the last podcast, or. I have no idea what order this is showing up in. So, in yeah, what we talked about it in the last episode where we talked about the first two episodes of series nine. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, I like the idea of this rock star doctor, this kind of aunt, like somebody who's a little drunk with their own popularity, um, <laughs> but also probably deeply insecure. Like rock star doctor. I would be down for that, and I think. But we already we already had a doctor who was sort of in love with his own performativity and completely insecure. He was called Tom Baker. He lived in the nineteen right. seventies. Right, and so it's like if you're going to do that, how are you going to do it different? And my own personal was just like draw from Peter Capaldi's life, make him more a, a bit of an anarchist and a punk rocker, whatever. Uh, you know, we we can talk about fan versions whenever but yeah again I the acting in New Who amazing I, I even really liked the acting in, in this episode we're talking about but sometimes mm. you the know, Pertwee the Pertwee era really does suffer for some horrible acting unfortunately yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's a real shame because um, a lot of the time a lot of the times the material is actually really good and then they give it to people who are, like, who are basically just playing it like panto which is really unfair i i think one of the if there if there was kind of a production side comparison to with capaldi and pertwee uh and this will have to wait a few years after capaldi's gone to kind of assess his whole era in general um and to get a little bit of distance from it but i think that you know at least when you're talking about series eight i think capaldi's performance is often better than the material he's in and I think mm-hmm. uh, Pertwee is is kind of the same way. Um, not necessarily in this, but in a lot of the the more kind of unit heavy stuff. He's yeah. often very good, but he's in a story that doesn't really ask him to do all that much. And I think that you know I, I talked a little bit earlier about how uh, Pertwee often gets uh, gets the shaft in terms of uh, fan appreciation and and critical appreciation, uh, just because uh, you know a lot of the stories just kind of you know oh it's a unit story you know there's a well you know about it, you know. But I, uh, story and I think that I think the bad quality of the acting also trains people away from noticing the subtleties of Pertwee's character. Oh, I, I don't, um, I don't disagree. Uh, I mean, pretty pr- a lot of my appreciation of Pertwee is based on the fact that I read him as being very knowingly silly. Um, and lots of people do not read him as being knowingly serious, silly. They take him seriously as being this kind of military spy. And when you're watching the Doctor through that lens, he suddenly becomes a very strange Doctor indeed. But I, but I wonder, especially if you look at Series 8, because there are so many of the stories which I I don't like very much, but I like Capaldi in them. And so, um, I don't know, for me, for me that's a... Uh, at least a comparison point. In general, I, I agree with you, Holly, about uh, Capaldi kind of reminding me a lot of the Fourth Doctor, um, particularly the uh, the earlier, more impish Fourth Doctor. I don't know; he's impish at the end too. I get, I get. I don't know. I'm having to reassess some of my opinions now that I'm rewatching a lot of these. But um, he does remind me of Tom Baker. He reminds me a little bit of uh, Eccleston. Um, and mm-hmm. some of the uh, the more serious, the the quieter moments. Um, uh, 
both he and Eccleston have a similar feeling of vague heresy about them, that they're deliberately mm. going against what is expected of the Doctor. Um, with Eccleston, it was because... Um, just reminding people that the doctor didn't always wear a funny hat and a scarf was enough to make him very edgy. And right. then Capaldi is deliberately being edgy because now he's the old doctor. He's the, um, he's the strange alien again. So yeah. there's that slight, slightly self-aware um, subversion. You get that with the sixth doctor as well a bit. Yeah, the problems with the Sixth Doctor era are myriad, but <laughs> we're not going to yeah, go there but right we, now. But we, can, but we can all agree that what they were at least attempting to do was this kind of um, this Doctor who was strange and crazy and subversive and um, broke the rules of his own show. Even if in the case of the Sixth Doctor, it was more in a case of becoming a parody of the Doctor, taken to some kind of horrible, dark extreme there's a, there's elements of that in Capaldi's performance as well. That he's this kind of parody of the Doctor. You know, he's horrible about Clara's appearance. He takes the asexuality right to this um, level of just bullying women. Thoughts, yeah? No, I I think I think that yeah, it's been pretty well said. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right, I think we uh, wrap this one up. Uh, I think we all we all pretty well like Carnival of Monsters and. Um... I'd watch it again. I don't own this one. It's actually uh, streaming on Netflix if you have a Netflix account. So that made it easy for me to pick this one because I didn't have to buy it. So it was awesome. Not in the UK. Well. Yeah. If you're in the UK, however, you can get the DVD for about £5. That's worth it. That's worth it. That's not that. bad. <laughs> All right. Um, Holly, thank you so much for joining us and talking about Carnival Monsters with us. Uh, would you like to plug your stuff? <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, I'm doing I'm doing City of the Dead, which is a podcast at, at taking a chronological look at each of the movies released by Amicus Productions in the 1960s to the 1970s. There, that's now part of um, Eruditorum Press because I was doing that with Pex Lives. Um, I was on a Shabcast recently as well, and uh, doing all sorts of cool stuff in that direction. We'll see how it all turns out. Awesome. And your Twitter, if you want people to follow you on Twitter. Yeah, I'm Fire Holly, but with a nine instead of an O. It looks right when you type it out, believe me. I thought you were Fire Hilly for a while. I was confused. It was just a thing. But um, <laughs> I, get, I get that the nine is supposed to be an O, but it looks like an I to me for, for some reason. So, <laughs> Not a big reader of Homestuck then, are you? No, I, I, I've, I've, I've uh, stayed away from that one, but you know. Um, <laughs> all right so uh, again thank you uh holly for being here uh hopefully you'll come back we weren't completely horrible to you um next week we are going to be talking about series nine episodes three and four and i don't have the titles in front of me because i'm a terrible person other than that stardust is closed Bye 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 our theme music is doctor who theme on mini moog by james bragg Find his YouTube channel at youtube.com slash hyperdust7 and his website at phoenix-flare.com. Daniel is also a regular host of the They Must Be Destroyed on Site movie podcast, which you can find at tmbdos.podbean.com. You can find all Oyce Spaceman episodes on iTunes or at our website oyspaceman.libsyn.com and our podcast blog is at oyspaceman.wordpress.com. You can email us at oyspacemanpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, and you can find our individual Twitter accounts at Daniel Lee Harper and Inkyosa. That's I-N-K-Y-O-S-A. Comments and questions, welcome.
Woo, 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 woo.